I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, I think one of my favourite stories in this book, and it's a very famous one about general relativity, is um, uh, the lecture. I think Eddington gives a lecture and uh, somebody comes up and, at the end and says, wow, you know, only three people in the world really understand general relativity. And uh, he thinks for a while and uh, he says, no, no, don't be modest. He says, no, I'm trying to think who the third person is. That, uh, <laughs> uh, and I think that it, it really struck me, yes, God. Why on earth are you going to write a book about general relativity for the general public if that was the kind of mood about this theory? I mean, it is a very tough theory. Uh, what on earth what made you, you yeah, think of tackling such a tough subject? So it's a bit of an obsession, and I think, I think a lot of us who work in physics have gone through that obsession. So I studied engineering in Lisbon in this incredible fascist building. I, I'd go to these lectures with 200 students, and we'd learn... We'd learn about bridges and electronics and things which I really have no interest in. But we had, the, we, we had these lecturers who would say... We had these people who were more inspired and say, you know, this electromagnetism that you learn, go and read Einstein's papers. And you'd go and read them and they were, you know, they were very beautiful. At some point I decided that I wanted to teach myself general relativity. And I think a lot of us have, have done that. In a lot of universities you don't learn this. And the fact that you teach it to yourself, first of all, means that you kind of commit to it in a way that you don't commit to lecture courses. And the other aspect of it was that there was, there's this incredibly beautiful mathematics, which is what supposedly makes it hard, but actually is, is not that hard. There's this myth about it, which is, if you just sit down and you learn it, you can actually do it, and then you can do all these amazing things, like the, the expansion of the universe and black holes. So I thought, look, it, you know, it's been an obsession for 25 years. I had to give it a go and write about it. And I guess we should have a go at trying to explain what it is. So uh, can we increase the number from 2 to 3 to maybe 30 <laughs> to 40? Uh, I mean, what, what is uh, the, at the heart of this uh, okay, great so you, breakthrough that so, Einstein made? So this is the lecture, right? So we do the lecture now, which is the theory of gravity for 200, 300 years was very simple. It was this force where if you had two bodies, the more massive a body was, the more attractive this force was. And the closer these two bodies were, the stronger the force was. And that was a theory that Newton proposed, and it was fantastic, because it explained everything. It explained why this is pulled down to Earth, why the planets move around the sun. But it wasn't perfect, because it was basically... It had something magical about it. It was instant. The, the way that Newton formulated was that the force was instantaneous. And with Einstein, you know, he'd figured out that things couldn't, things couldn't happen instantaneous. There was this kind of limit, which was the speed of light. Einstein tried to figure out how he could bring gravity into his understanding of physics. And to do that, he had to learn this bizarre mathematics, which is known Riemannian geometry, and he came up with general relativity. What is general relativity? The idea is that space-time, instead of just being a place to put things in and a clock to, to keep tabs on stuff, it has a life of its own. It's, it's malleable. It moves around. It distorts. If you put something in space-time, it bends. If you throw something through this bent space-time, it'll feel these bends and curve. And so what you think is something pulling on something else is not really that. 
It's something bending space-time and then something feeling the warps of space-time. So general relativity is a theory of space-time. Space-time is kind of a participant in everything else and evolves like everything else. Uh, what I think is so amazing about Einstein is uh, these thought experiments that he did and uh, the idea that you know you can't tell whether you're moving or not or whether somebody else is moving was the key to special relativity. But general relativity comes out of um, another sort of equivalence um, that uh, actually you can't tell the difference between whether you're accelerating or whether there's a force of gravity. Exactly. Uh, uh, and, and that sort of was somehow key to, to his breakthrough. A totally key. So... so he comes up with his special theory of relativity in 1905, and he's he's a he's a patent he's working in a patent office. In 1907, he's still working in a patent office, and they commission uh, a review from him, uh, an article describing his theory of relativity, and he's sitting there and he hasn't figured out how he's going to incorporate gravity into his theory of relativity, and he dozes off, according to his description. And he has this vision or dream that he's falling off a house. And the statement he made, he, he, made, he, he described this in a, in a speech he gave in Tokyo. Um, if a man falls off a house, he won't feel his own weight. And it is true, right? It's the whole idea of free fall. If you're falling freely, you're falling freely. You don't feel any weight. If you're in an elevator, for example, and the elevator starts to accelerate upwards, you feel heavier. If it starts to decelerate, you feel lighter. And so there is this, this equivalence between motion and gravity, which was crucial for what he did. And what about, uh, I mean, he, his relationship with mathematics, I think, is quite interesting, because as you say, um, it's an Im- important uh, role that it plays in understanding how to develop this theory. Mm. But Einstein admitted to that he wasn't the greatest of mathematicians. Uh, so, so how did he manage to incorporate the maths that he needed into... To, to make this thing work, if he wasn't so good at maths. No, he's a funny. He's a funny one because he was quite good at maths at school, but he wasn't into fancy mathematics. So he would use enough mathematics that he needed to explain his ideas, his thought experiments. But that was it. And he'd get really pissed off if someone tried to formulate his stuff more mathematically. You know, he would say the mathematics have the mathematicians have taken hold of it and made it completely un- incomprehensible. He had a more colourful statement, which I won't say here. Right. But, uh, so, but the interesting thing is, he used just enough mathematics. In, he set off on his trek to try and formulate general relativity in 1907. By 1911, he was completely stuck. He didn't know how to move forward. And so he goes and talks to his um, mathematician friend, Marcel Grossman, and he says, look, help me, I'm going nuts. You know, this is just killing me. And his mathematician friend says, oh, you need to learn Riemannian geometry gave him a paper by a guy called Levi Civita and a, a textbook and he went away and he learnt it and it, I mean it's a bit like teaching it to yourself it's like learning a new language except he learnt a new language and then wrote this incredible novel from scratch right so um, and that that was a transformation in his way of thinking and from then on it was all about the mathematics the mathematics were the key, was the key driver in his ideas you know that something had to be mathematically beautiful to be acceptable and it's kind of extraordinary that mathematics was waiting there for them to, to, to use. I mean, some have sort of questioned whether really um, special relativity, there are many people who almost discovered it, Poincaré, um, others as well, yes. who, who were having these ideas. But uh, I think many recognise that, well, general relativity is something really probably only Einstein could unique, have done. Yeah. I mean, although he had, he went to Göttingen and talked to Hilbert, yes. and um, uh, Hilbert then came up with very similar ideas from what I read in but the book. Einstein and, uh, had to tell him. 
So, uh, yes, but, uh, but there, there, yeah. there was a moment, I think, of friction. It could have gone either way. If Hilbert had wanted to hold out and say, actually, but I finished it off. So, um, this, yeah, so the story is Einstein, it's 1915, he goes and visits David Hilbert, who was the great mathematician in, Go- in Göttingen. And they have these conversations, and one gets the impression that Einstein didn't really understand what Hilbert was saying, and Hilbert didn't really understand what Einstein was saying. That's the uh, trouble with physicists and mathematicians. <laughs> we really speak very different languages. Uh, and anyway, so Einstein goes away, and, and I think this was around the summer. By November, all of a sudden, he figures it out. And the amazing thing, writing this book, is you realise that between figuring stuff out and writing a paper was like weeks. You know, he, he wrote the paper in weeks. But around the same time, Hilbert had kind of realised what Einstein was saying and had found a completely different formulation and had submitted a paper before Einstein submitted his paper to the Prussian Academy of Sciences. So for about a month, a month or two, there was some tension until Hilbert wrote a letter to to Einstein saying that actually, um, you know, this is very clearly your idea, this is Einstein's theory, and it will always be known as Einstein's theory, and, you know, these will be Einstein's equations. And so, you know, Hilbert very quickly conceded defeat. He didn't want to get into trouble. Yeah, yeah. And what about the, uh, I mean, there were kind of bizarre ideas. How long did it take to really realise that these were the right ideas and this, this is what was a very good new theory for how um, the, the universe looked? So, so there are two strands, right? There's the idea that there's this thing where you get this theory and a lot of people realised very quickly that it was incredibly beautiful and very powerful. And so for about 10 years, 10, 15, well, 12 years, it's, it's what happens when someone comes up with a good new theory. There's what's called the low-hanging fruit, where people just come in and realise that there are all these calculations you can do and these predictions that you can make. So a German astronomer who was on the Russian front, this was around 1915, worked out the first calculation, predicted black holes for the first time. They weren't called black holes. They didn't realise they were black holes, but you know, he did that then. A few years later, a Soviet meteorologist and mathematician realised that Einstein's equation predicted that the universe was expanding. Then a Belgian priest did the same thing. So people were calculating things from this theory. But the thing that really clinched it was this English astronomer, Arthur Eddington, who was kind of enamoured by the mathematics of these papers and realised that there was a prediction. And the prediction was that light would be bent by a, by a massive object. In other words, if you put something in space-time, as I said, space-time is bent and light rays curve around and Einstein had made this, had proposed this. The idea is that you, you look at some distant stars and you measure their positions and then you wait until the sun is in front and then you measure the positions of the stars. Except that the sun is too bright, so you have, you have to have something which will mask the sun. You need an eclipse. Turns out there was an eclipse in 1919, in May of 1919. Eddington went to this small island in the Gulf of Guinea, measured and he found this distortion of light. And that was the story that you opened up with, is where he announced his results. He, he, saw, he said that Einstein had predicted the bending of light to a certain degree. He had measured it, and so Einstein was correct. Which was a huge thing, because this was an English astronomer announcing this at the Royal Astronomical Society a year after the, the end of the First World War. It was, you know, it's a huge deal. Yeah, and, and it made uh, the newspapers. It and made it the newspapers, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and, and is that what really sort of um, jettisoned Einstein into the public imagination? Totally, he became a superstar, a completely superstar. Right, yeah, yeah, because, yeah. because of that. Uh, yeah, there was this thing that he said, which is, if all things hold well, the Germans will call me a German man of science, and the British will call me a Swiss-Jewish 
scientist, thinker. If everything goes wrong, the Germans will call me a Swiss Jewish thinker and, and the, the British will call me a German man of science. <laughs> Now, it's interesting, at the one moment in the book, you say that the book is really a biography of um, general relativity. Uh, if you were going to sum up general relativity, it, it, it's sort of personality, and it's, um, you know, what is this person like that, that you've written a biography of? So, so about four months ago, five months ago, I read this biography, Penelope Fitzgerald. I don't know if anyone of you have read it. Penelope Fitzgerald's this fascinating character, right? She, she was born into some affluence, and she... Um, had quite a gilded childhood. She went to Oxford. She, she, she wrote for Punch during her 30s. And then something happened. Something happened because of her marriage and her, her life. It completely fell apart. And for about 20 years, she was penurious. She was living on a barge in, in the Thames. She was teaching. I mean, she was really getting by. And it was only in her late 50s, 60s that she took off. And within about four years of writing her first novel, did she win the Booker Prize and then she became the superstar? General relativity is just like that. Mm-hmm. General relativity, you know, born out of you know German science, effectively, all this low-hanging fruit, all this easy stuff, and then it dies a death for about twenty-five years. It's a trek in the wilderness. No one really wants to work on it. It's very beautiful, very esoteric, but no one wants to work on it. And then in the nineteen sixties, it's resurrected for a number of reasons, which we can discuss. And it just has what an American physicist Kip Thorne has called the golden age, where black holes are understood, they're discovered, they're seen, the, the universe is proven to be expanding. I mean, all these amazing discoveries. People, people you've heard of, like Martin Rees, Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, come out of this incredible time. And now, you know, it's, it's in a glorious age. I mean, there's all this amazing stuff happening. So Did that's that, why I call it a biography. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, that um, sort of l- low period in general relativity's life, w- was that really because there was another kid on the block? I mean, quantum yes. physics was what was drawing all the physicists um, uh, at that, you know, after general relativity's big hit um, in the 20s, 30s, and suddenly the, what they, everyone was interested in was really quantum physics. I think that was the big thing. So 10 years after general relativity, this, the other big theory of the 20th century, quantum, quantum physics was basically discovered and proposed. And the great thing about quantum physics is that you explain things that you can build, you can work in a laboratory, you can use it to build bombs, for example. So it's an incredibly effective, useful, practical theory. While general relativity is very esoteric, it's about up there, in you know, very large scales and the expansion of the universe and black holes. So it's just much more effective to work on quantum physics than general relativity. I mean, is it just a problem because it's very hard to do experiments when you're talking about a theory at such large scales? Yes, I, mean, I think that was, that was the problem. I mean, there was a meeting in the late 1950s which was an attempt by people to kind of regenerate general relativity. And one of the plenary lectures was, you know, we're in the same situation we were in 1919. And this was like 40 years later. We have no experiments. We have nothing to measure. But that changed. What suddenly caused this resurgence of people like Hawking and Penrose? Is it the discovery of things like black holes and and the development of that theory and the ability to perhaps probe the universe in a way that we couldn't um, in the early 20th century? I think the thing that's interesting is it comes from almost mundane reasons. First of all, the radar generation, people who were working on radar during the Second World War, come out with all this expertise and they start building radio telescopes. Radio telescopes are telescopes that can measure things with very long wavelengths, millimetres, centimetres, you know, very long wavelengths. And they start finding all these very distant objects in the sky which are incredibly energetic. And one of the things you know is 
you know, in astrophysics, if something is incredibly energetic and powerful, you need general relativity. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is American industry and defense, in the same way that with quantum physics had been used to build the bomb, they thought, well, maybe we can construct spaceships with this. And they started thinking about investing in um, general relativity to develop anti-gravity devices. So a lot of money started flowing into this field, which really had not much going on in it. But I think mostly it's these people who worked on developing the bomb and other stuff wanted to do something completely different. So I, I think actually there was this movement towards it, and then discoveries happened. And, um, of course, during this period, we, we get the discovery of things like the Big Bang. Yes. I and mean, that's an absolute key moment in yeah. you know, general relativity, making predictions about uh, not just what's going to happen in the future, but the past as well. I mean, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I, th- I mean, the two great things that happened during the Golden Age were... One was black holes, and it, people said that one of the worries with general relativity is it predicted these strange objects which have this surface, and if something falls into the surface, it can never come out. And not only that, right at the centre, they're points of infinite curvature. They're very warped. People thought these are just mathematical artefacts. Roger Penrose proved that actually these things are completely ubiquitous. They're general, that you will find them. You should find them astrophysically if you believe general relativity. And then people started finding evidence for these things by looking at in, in, in astrophysics. But the other thing is, as you say, the discovery that the universe early on had been very hot. Again, some radio astronomers, by chance, in 1965, found this afterglow from the very early universe. Uh, and of course, you know, that transforms things, because now you have direct evidence that the universe was hot in the past. This theory of Einstein's, which predicts a hot early time, is the only thing that can explain it. But it's interesting that actually, as you've already mentioned, both of these ideas were already there right at the beginning of uh, the theory of general yes. relativity. That you have this guy on the front in Russia yes. who's already seen that there's a solution which is a singular point which will be exactly. uh, a black hole. And, and also the idea of there being a beginning and a big bang yep. is interesting. And it's no, coming from a priest. And uh, it's true. So, so the guy who came up with this idea of a hot beginning was a... A Belgian priest, the Abbé Lemaitre, and he he took hold of Einstein's equations and he found that the universe was expanding. But he decided to push it as far back as possible, and he, and he realized that the mathematics predicted that there was an initial moment, a big bang. He called it the primeval atom, which was an interesting problem because he was a priest, and so he was terrified that people would think that he was pushing this idea because he was a priest. So he went to great pains to write essays saying that this has nothing to do with religion and you know you know this is in the mathematics and it's true i think you genuinely this wasn't this wasn't theologically motivated it was really the mathematics that proved it but people didn't like that idea people never liked the idea of a big bang and people people still still don't like the idea of a big bang but i mean it's interesting that einstein at the theory as well went into a little bit of a decline uh, but also einstein too i mean he has this wonderful moment when he's in his glory days and then you know he moves to Princeton and in your book you sort of describe how he sort of the end of his life is a little bit uh, marginalised and he's a bit, uh, I mean, so what's, what's happening there I mean why it's quite funny. what is he doing so there was something slightly schizophrenic about his attitude on the one hand he absolutely adored his theory of general relativity and he he saw it as the model of how theories should be built which is based on mathematical grounds so he spent 30 years coming up with these incredibly contrived mathematical theories which would try and incorporate general relativity and other things which didn't work but it was driven by the mathematics on the other hand when people like the Abbé Lemaitre would sit down and just take hold of his theory 
calculate and say, look, your theory predicts mathematically that the universe was expanding. He would say, he met him at a conference in 1927, and the Abbe said, have you read my paper? And he said, look, your mathematics is correct, but your physics is abominable. And, and he just couldn't, on the one hand, he was very mathematically inclined, on the other hand, he became mathematically inclined. On the other one, he couldn't shake his intuition. And the thing is, he got a lot of his intuition right, but he got a lot of it wrong. So, you know, he didn't believe the universe would be expanding, and he really fought against it until it was proven to him that it was. He didn't accept black hole solutions. He didn't. He didn't think that they were at, they were possible. Um, really, although the mathematics was saying that yeah, he's, but he, he said, just believed that he said it's look. a mathematical artifact. They would never form in nature. Right. And he even wrote a paper showing that they wouldn't form, which was wrong. They are beautiful examples of someone who really knows the power of mathematics fudging the mathematics to try and get the result that he wants. I mean, one of the really interesting sort of stories for me, um, perhaps because it's when Einstein meets a mathematician, is when he encounters Gödel um, in Princeton. So Gödel was this uh, um, logician who proved an amazing theorem in mathematics, uh, the incompleteness theorem, that uh, there are things which are true about numbers which we'll never be able to prove. I mean, he really had a massive effect on on our subject. And he, he comes to Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study, and, um, and Einstein and Gödel uh, really get on. I mean, they, they walk to the Institute together in the morning, chatting away. And then Gödel gets interested in these equations and, and comes up with some very strange mathematical solutions to yeah. them. Can you describe what, what they say? I can't. So, so it's this thing. It's this thing that I love about Einstein's equations, which is, you know, he proposed them in 1915. They're the same equations with which we work now, right? So anyone can get hold of them and try and figure stuff out. And so Gödel got hold of them and tried to understand if there were other solutions to these equations which weren't just the usual expanding universe solutions. And he came up with this bizarre solution, which is called the Gödel universe, which has a particular property, which is that you can travel back in time. In this universe, you can travel back in time. Now, there are two interesting things to say about this. First of all, again, Einstein said, oh, okay, that's just a mathematical artifact that has no reality. But that's a bit worrying because you have a theory of physics which predicts the existence of something. And why should you discard it just because you don't like it? But uh, the interesting aspect about moving back in time is that it creates all these paradoxes. And, And the classic paradox is the killing your grandmother paradox, which is suppose that you go back in time and kill your grandmother. If you kill your grandmother, you will never exist it, so, which means you will never have been able to go back in time to kill your grandmother. And the point is that in Einstein's theory, there is the possibility of solutions where you can do that. So is that a problem in the theory, or do you have to supplement your theory with something more? Do you have to forbid those types of solutions because they're paradoxical? I mean, I suppose he was having the same sort of thoughts about black holes. That, you know, you can't go back in time and surely black holes are yeah. ridiculous. Exactly. Um, but now we've discovered black holes. So, yes. it, you know, should we be open to the possibilities exactly. that these solutions that Gödel came up with, perhaps we do have to do away with causality. I mean, that's one of the, the reasons that we say nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Well, actually, there are solutions to his equations where things do go faster than the speed of light. If you look at it from one direction, but if you look at, you know, so, so yeah. the, the classic example I think that you're alluding to is Suppose you take a bit of space-time, right, and you move from here to here, and it takes quite a while. Now you fold space-time like that, and you construct a wormhole, so you go very quickly from here to here. It'll look like you've travelled very quickly along this direction, but you've only travelled 
in, no, at a normal speed through here. So I think that's what you're probably alluding to. Well, I'm also alluding to solutions. Uh, there are particles um, which I can't remember what the tachyons. name is. Tachyons, exactly. Yes. Tachyons. So, I mean, th- those are solutions that um, you know are possible, but we say that, well, these things are not going to exist exactly. because they would um, kind of mess with our ideas. Of, but, you know, is, is there a point in the future where maybe we have to give up with, uh, on this sort of idea that, well, maybe you can go back and kill your grandfather and something is happening to, yeah, uh, to split off the universe into different... It's possible, I don't know. That, that, yeah. Then you start entering the even more esoteric world of what general relativity has created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you call the book, interestingly, The Perfect Theory. Yes. Why do you call it The Perfect Theory? Um, okay, because I love it, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but don't you work on trying to perturb this theory? Oh, well, I try to figure out if it's correct, but that's what you should do, yeah. you know. I think, you know, just to echo what I said, he comes up with this theory a hundred years ago, and it's still the same theory. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like, for example, you know, a few years ago you heard about the discovery of the Higgs. Phenomenal theory. It's the standard model of particles and fields. It, you know, it works incredibly well. But it's a theory that has grew by increments. You know, there was quantum physics in the 1920s, and then there was marrying that to special relativity in the 1930s and, you know there were all these steps that led to the theory that it is now and it's quite a messy theory but it works incredibly well Einstein's theory was there you know, he writes this paper on the 22nd of November he presents this theory and that's the theory it hasn't changed so there's something kind of perfect about that yeah that's extraordinary but do you think that maybe we're a little bit too respectful of this theory uh, because it's working so well that uh, I mean you, you mentioned at some point that uh, PhD supervisors just uh, telling their students not to work on general relativity for fear of becoming unemployable I mean it's, is this kind of just a, are being people told not to go there because it's all finished perfect and I but think, actually it's open for I think as a field it's interesting that even though it underwent a renaissance in the in the 1960s you know you still don't want to put your graduate students working on it full time because yeah. I was talking to a colleague of mine, I don't know, last year, maybe three people were hired in the US working specifically on general relativity. You use general relativity to do other stuff, but just as a relativist, it's still, you don't, you don't want to do it full time. In some sense, we know that things aren't perfect. No. Because we know that uh, uh, general relativity and quantum physics exactly. have got a few problems. They don't mesh. You know, if you take the universe back to the Big Bang and yeah. the, suddenly the very large intersects with the very small yeah. and, and things are just not adding up. So so something's got to give. So It's what, true, it's true. What, I mean, what, what do you think's got to give? Is this going to be still there? Depends on who you talk to. Uh, uh, yeah. It depends exactly. on who you talk to and, and it's very interesting. So most people think that... General relativity is just an approximation when you go to very small scales, and that there are different variants. I mean, there are some people who actually think that space and time don't really exist. When yes, you that's very interesting. You call them all an emergent. It's, uh, an, it's an emergent yeah. thing. It's and and the description, which is wrong but roughly good, is that it's a bit like talking about water. Water is made of molecules, but yet we describe water as a fluid. But actually, we should be careful because that's not what it is. Water is an emergent thing. Maybe space and time have the same, you know, have the same characteristics. But there are people like Roger Penrose who, for example, thinks there is nothing more perfect than general relativity, and then it's quantum mechanics that has to be changed. Now, of course, the the subject where everyone is getting hired. I mean, you say there are three in general relativity, but there are many in string theory. Uh, so, so what are your uh, what are your views on on, on this as a? I don't work well, in string theory. I think it's a yeah. fantastic topic. I mean, it's generated so many good ideas. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, it's one of these things. There was a backlash a few years ago against string theory because 
its claim that it, ha- it, it hasn't made any hard predictions, a bit like, you know, Einstein predicting, you know, reflection of light that Eddington then went measured, or Higgs predicting the Higgs boson, but someone came up with a brilliant example, which is Democritus predicted atoms 2,000 years ago, and it took 2,000 years for us to see atoms. Yeah. It's an incredibly hard topic, you know, it may be wrong, but it's a bit too soon to say that if it's wrong. In your view, is there anything that really has matched that moment when uh, I mean, it really transformed our our view of where we live, I mean, yes. the universe. Uh, do you think there's anything uh, since that moment in, in 1915 that, that matches that, in your view? In general relativity? Or no, general? I think in physics in general, actually. Uh, no, but I'm biased. You're biased, yes. yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Biased. I'm biased. And, and uh, what are the big problems, I mean, what are you working on? General relativity is part of your research world. For you, what are the interesting problems that you want to crack? So what I specifically work on is... So it's the perfect theory, and, and you know, we, if we embrace it as the perfect theory, we go away and calculate what our universe is doing, and what do we find? We find that the universe is expanding, but not only is it expanding, it's expanding a little bit too quickly than we thought it should, it's accelerating, and our only understanding of it in the context of general relativity is there's some bizarre stuff out there which is doing this. It's what's called dark energy, or other people think of it just as the cosmological constant. In other words, most of the universe is made up of stuff that we don't know what it is. And so when that happens, I think one attitude one can have is think, okay, well, maybe we're pushing our theory to its limits. John Wheeler, one of the, one of the people who led to the regeneration of general relativity, said that the best way to test a theory is to push it to its extremes. And I would say that looking at the universe, we're pushing, pushing general relativity to its extremes. So one of the things I'm trying to do is are there precise ways of testing general relativity on the scale of the universe? Can we figure out if Einstein was right on those scales? And I think we will be able to test it. I think that the most exciting thing is, in the next ten years, we'll be able to test general relativity on the scales of the cosmos as well as we test it on the scales of the planets. You know, we, we test it very well on the scales of the planets, so that's what I work on. The, your last chapter, I think, is called Something is Going to Happen. Yes. That was a title suggested by a very dear friend of mine. And, uh, right. And I think it is a bit the spirit of, of, of this book, which is, I think, it's been this slog. Penelope Fitzgerald, right? You know, she went out and then she went out. And now we're in a situation where all these experiments are being designed. Satellites are being put up. There's this huge radio telescope which is being built in South Africa. My colleagues, the string theorists, other people who don't work on string theory, are just beginning to focus on the really important problems. And I just feel that there are going to be discoveries. I mean, three or four months ago... Exactly, I was going to... Because you did tweet, yeah. I told you so, where, when the announcement about possible yeah. gravitational waves... So about so three... Was... Exactly, three or four months ago, I don't know if you saw this news, which was a group in Harvard had detected gravitational waves from the early universe. And this is important for two reasons. One, it's gravitational waves, which is ripples in space-time, which is one of the predictions that Einstein made... The other thing is it's from the early universe, which is another prediction from general relativity. So it's the combination of these wonderful things. The early universe is kind of set up sloshing waves in space-time, and we, we'd see them. If they are right, if it's true, it's Nobel Prize-winning material. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. As a colleague of mine said, it's the most exciting discovery of the 21st century. Of course, 21st century is quite young. Another colleague of mine said... It's the most exciting thing I've seen in my life. He's also quite young. And I think this is an example of of something 
it's a kind of thing that I'm expecting that we all have because the like theory that. predicts that there yeah. will be these ripples but uh, I mean there's a wonderful description of uh, trying to detect these waves uh, some decades ago with yes. people hanging things up trying to see it's a rather depressing story actually because it's about a guy who keeps on changing his data every time you know somebody finds a little mistake and then he says oh yes of course I yeah. um, and, and eventually he you know he goes from the heights of being celebrated as perhaps a future Nobel Prize winner to suddenly being um, totally marginalised yeah, um, yeah. now uh, I mean there's interesting sort of talk about the current data mm. there are lots of big announcements about those gravitational waves but the most recent reports are that maybe it was a little bit too soon uh, so, so the story is they see they, they, they measure this they, they sit on their data for three years they're very careful experimenters and then in April they announced their results in this huge press conference at Harvard it was I mean it was all very controlled you couldn't have access to the press release unless you were a friendly journalist or you interviewed the right people they really tried to con- con- control it of course what, what happens is you know the data is then public and people go and reanalyze the data and some people think that they haven't seen these gravitational waves but what they've actually seen is what a colleague of mine called smuts smutch which is you know the galaxy it's just nothing important it's just dust in the galaxy and so now a little bit of a backlash they're saying no no they didn't discover it they've they've overreached they've overclaimed and it's interesting to see what happens you know i've decided to be an optimist i've decided to believe that they have discovered it and my hope is that in the, i think i'll only be completely convinced it's not or it is with more data and more data is coming yeah. in in the next year so exactly. this is partly why this is an exciting time for general and that's why and that's why yeah it's why i call it something's going to happen because there's all this stuff happening um, so we're going to have some time for some questions. Uh, there's a, a microphone ready. I, I already rather dangerously asked my um, Twitter whether there are any questions. Um, so we've got a few that have come in already. One was how to explain general relativity to my six-year-old. Oh, my God. Um, but if you were going to try and capture for... Perhaps let's uh, do the, the Guardian version where you have to explain to an, an under-ten-year-old. What, what sort of um, things did you pick on to, to try and excite you know, somebody who... Make the next great, great. That's a really. I mean, okay. I couldn't give a good answer now, but I would try and use. I would try and use the analogy that, which is the rubber sheet analogy, which is imagine that you have a rubber sheet and you put something heavy in this rubber sheet, and then you roll a marble um, in that rubber sheet. It'll curve around, and you'll think that there's the the marble is being pulled by that ball. That looked like a force, but it isn't the force. It's the effect of the rubber sheet. Now imagine that that rubber sheet is space. Time, so I would try and formulate it that way. Right. I'm sorry. Um, uh, There was also a question about whether these gravity waves travel faster than the speed of light. No, they don't. That no, they don't. They travel exactly at the speed of light. Yeah, and that is the graviton, which will be the uh, version of the photon. Exactly. Eddington didn't believe in gravity waves, and he said that they travel faster than the speed of thought. Uh, Right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any um, thoughts that are travelling faster than the speed of light? Yeah. So we've got a question here. Um, Pedro, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to be here while you're here, and I have two quick questions. One is, ten years ago with my eldest daughter, Isabel, we went to um, a bit of uh, Einstein called Genius at the Skirball Center in L.A., and what stayed with me was, as a child, what captured his imagination was a small compass. So I want to know what captured you as a child or a young man to pursue this path and secondarily 
I've been reading a lot about Lisa Randall in the U.S., so those are my two questions. Um, let me answer the f- second question first. Lisa Randall, she's very clever. She's a very good theoretical physicist. I think you know, we all respect her a lot. Uh, what, what inspired me? I think I was always reasonably good at maths, <laughs> which means that I didn't really pay much, that much attention to it. I wasn't very fascinated by it. It was just the stuff that was easy to do at school. And so I was actually quite lazy at school. And, and you know, the maths was the easy route. That's why um, I chose to do maths. So I was incredibly lazy, and it was just, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's if just you're good at history, you still have to work hard. Yeah. You know, so. No, maths was, that was the thing, and maths. And so I went into engineering because... But that's it, what you see. I, I was like, somebody tried to push me to go into engineering. Yeah. And I was like, no way do I want to get my hands dirty. So it's a more sociological thing, right? I'm from Portugal. I'm from Lisbon, right? Yeah. What are the big professions? They are engineering, law, and medicine. And so I said, I want to do physics. I said, okay, go do engineering. <laughs> and so yeah. I ended up doing engineering but learning physics. And it was actually while I was doing engineering that, bored to tears with engineering, that I, you know, I had like-minded colleagues, and we discovered the maths library there, which had this fantastic, bizarre collection of books by Dirac and, and, um, and Eddington and, Misnet- and Wheeler. That's what did it. It was the books. Thank you. Um, forgive my ignorance. Um, you said that in ten years you expect lots of discoveries to do with the cosmos, uh, the scale of the cosmos rather than the scale of planets. I'm wondering what, what are the new kind of instruments that are making that possible because I suppose we've heard about particles and we all know about CERN. For yep. particle level stuff, what are the breakthroughs that are happening in new kind of instruments that are making those much larger scale discoveries possible? Okay, there are three things to watch out for. The first thing is the European Space Agency is going to launch a satellite in around 2020 called Euclid. And it's Euclid? Called Euclid. A very good choice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is going to map out the galaxies. That's the first thing, and that's going to be fantastic. The second thing is something called the Square Kilometre Array. And what is it? It's, roughly speaking, it's you, you carpet the South African desert and part of Australia with satellite dishes such that if you add up all the collecting area of all these satellite dishes, it makes up a square kilometre, which is huge. Okay? And that, a colleague of mine has said, is that's going to videotape the universe. Basically, in real time, you're going to be collecting data out as far as the cosmological horizon on you know, 100 billion galaxies. And the third thing is a camera which is being built on the top of a mountain in the Atacama Desert on an instrument called LSST, which is also going to take snapshots of the, of the sky, and real snapshots. It's like a huge CCD over you know number of times a night, and it's just going to build up this image of, of the universe. So those are the th- three things to watch out for. So we had a question here, and then we'll go here. Um, I just wanted to ask, and this is referring back to Marcus de Soto's question about were there any other important equations or ones that could come close and I wondered um, if you wouldn't consider Maxwell's equations to be just as important since Einstein kind of built from that completely so Maxwell's equations are the set of equations in some well they're not the first unified they're a set of equations that brought together not only electricity and magnetism but also brought them together with with a, a little bit with motion and, and they're this beautiful set of equations. That's where it all starts. I mean, that's 
that's really the, one of the first beautiful things one learns in, in physics. But then the other great equation is the Dirac equation, right, which describes, you know, describes an electron in the context of special relativity. So there are beautiful equations. There are lots of beautiful Don't worry, you get to take eight on your desert island. So exactly. Three, so you've still got five left. Yes, so yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, let's have this question here. Well, my question follows on from that, really, because I'm really, really interested in how you use the word beautiful. Because it seems to me that you use beautiful to kind of mean true. Um, and I don't know if this is true or beautiful equally for maths and for physics but you know in poetry sometimes you have to refuse beauty because there's a concept of an easy beauty which is it's it's actually getting in the way of what might be more honest so does that could that apply in either maths or physics do you want to answer first um, yeah, I think it's a very interesting, uh, because in mathematics, I think more than anything, you see, uh, poor old Pedro has to sort of match up with what the physical universe is like. And, you know, I get to play with any sort of universe. So, you know, we, we generate different geometries which may not have anything to do with geometry here. And I think um, uh, the aesthetics is a very um, important part in what I choose to talk about. Because, I mean, I can get my laptop to generate true theorems of mathematics, but I wouldn't call that mathematics. A mathematician is making a lot of choices in the journey that they want to take their reader or the the audience on. Uh, And so I'm actually finding bits of mathematics which have those kind of uh, gritty moments of, uh, uh, where something changes dramatically into something else and, and those will motivate what excite me uh, to, to investigate and will have a very similar feeling. You, you, you'd want that sort of tension between things being kind of wild and chaotic and not quite understandable but then you, you can actually grasp them and I think I, I remember a moment when I had a conjecture uh, which I've been trying to work on for about 10 years, about some symmetry in an equation, and I just couldn't make it work. And then my graduate student came rather sheepishly, and you know he was talking about his work, and then this example came out and said, and your conjecture is completely false, and showed me an example where it had gone wrong. But actually, what was exciting was that it made things much richer in the end, because it... it created a sort of um, texture to the whole theory. There are some places where things go well and some where they don't. So I, I think, you know, sometimes that grit, there's beauty even in that grit, just as in poetry. So, so I think in physics, we use these almost neoclassical concepts of beauty and, and elegance. But I, I think we have to be careful of what we mean by that. So the colleague of ours, Nima Akani Hamid, recently made this statement, which is when we mean beauty, what we really mean is durable. There's something durable. There's something like you've come up with an equation that really will withstand the test of time and is just applicable generally, and it's just it's fantastic. Having said that, it turns out that, for example, the mathematical theory that describes the Higgs particle and the standard model, while fundamentally it's beautiful, the actual implementation is actually quite ugly. It's quite messy. There are a lot of parameters. And so the real world steps in and says, yeah, it would be great if there were all these symmetries and it was all... But uh, it's still fantastic. And it's amazing that we can calculate things so, so well. So, yeah, yeah, the real world kind of steps in. A really intriguing subject here. Um, I was just curious. So you mentioned that some people believe that uh, space and time are perhaps uh, don't exist and they're more emergent properties. Well, one of, one of the ramifications, which is, is interesting, it's been developing over the last few years, is... We've developed all this mathematics to do calculations to predict things. For example, to predict how many Higgs we should find in the in LHC in, 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 the, in the particle accelerator. But 
maybe we have to think of a different type of mathematics. Maybe we have to think of a mathematics which doesn't depend on positions and, and time in a way that physics has depended. Maybe we have to throw away... It's what's called locality. Maybe we have to just jettison this locality. And, and there, you know, there is a, tra- a current of thought which says, no, no, what we have to talk about is we throw stuff in and we throw stuff out, you know, what happens? And that's what, what, are, what are known as scattering phenomena. Maybe there's a way of describing this without talking about what happens inside. What, it's not like a particle hits this one and does that or something happening locally. All we know is some stuff goes in, stuff goes out. There's something that happens here. The physics that we got, we've got, to, the mathematics we've got to use to describe what's going in cannot use the concept of space and time. So that's one of the big implications. People thinking in a completely different way. And it turns out that there is, in some cases, people have been able to do that and the mathematics simplifies dramatically. Calculations which are pages and pages and pages turn out to be incredibly simple. I mean, it's very intriguing that um, Einstein was quite lucky to have uh, mathematics that had been developed uh, you know, yes. 50 years earlier by Bernhard Riemann waiting there, just the right thing to. And, and Ed Witten has said that somehow we're actually in the reverse situation, yeah. that um, we've discovered 21st century physics, but we don't have the maths yet. Um, oh, well, I mean, I think one of the wonderful things is, you know, we have, we have some friends and colleagues in the audience who work on string theory who, who've actually proven and predicted stuff for number theory, for pure mathematics basically starting from physics and you know that's yeah I mean, it's very interesting yeah uh, i mean what, the first book music of the primes is a, a story just about how trying to predict prime numbers and quantum physics seem to have some exactly. resonances with yeah, yeah. i was going to ask what your view was on entropic gravity or emergent gravity perhaps you could explain what entropic i wish gravity. i could i wish right. i could yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of gravity that comes from information theory by someone you know it's very renowned string theorists who decided to rephrase gravity in terms of information theory and entropy. Um, That's all I'm going to say. And about a few years ago, he published a paper, and it was everywhere. New scientist, you know, Scientific American, and it really really took off dramatically. It's kind of tailed off. I mean, there hasn't been great progress since since those first, you know, that, that first year. They've got a lot of funding to study it, so, you know, if something's there, they'll find it. I was wondering, listening to you, has the Big Bang theory been universally accepted? And is it possible to build all these further theories on top of it, yes or not? First question. And second question is, I just don't know what are those primitive or early universes you refer to. Can you please tell us? Let me qualify the statement, which is, Yes, the Big Bang Theory has been universally accepted in the sense that we live in an expanding universe which is much hotter in the past and it basically explains many things. So it's been universally accepted. So that's the first statement. What I meant is the early universe is when the universe was much hotter. It's our universe, but it's much hotter. It's not a different universe. No. Yeah. Um, firstly, I, I loved your reference to the Euclid satellite because I love the idea that Euclidean geometry is still being referred to and I wonder if uh, there'll be an Einstein equivalent sometime a couple of, couple of thousand years in the future. So my question's sort of a broad one and it's really where you think the balance lies between experiment and maths and thought experiment and maths because it's very striking that a lot of Einstein's theories came out of a thought experiment that was rooted in real-world examples, mm. and arguably some of the early quantum mechanics came out of thought experiments. I wondered if you <coughs> felt that recent maths, and I'm thinking of the recent theories around string theory, 
have developed to the point where they are not expressible in thought experiments. Whether you think that's a problem or it's a step ahead? I don't think it's a problem because I think that happened quite a while ago in the, you know, in the development of what we now call the standard model. We've left, we left intuition far behind in the 1930s and it's worked incredibly well. I don't see it as a problem. Where the balance... I'm, I'm totally agnostic on that. I mean, I, I love maths and I do think that there's a lot to... I think the thing is... If I you, love you. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got to follow mathematical reasoning. You can't stop because it becomes esoteric. I mean, you've just got to push it as far as you can to its completion to see where it goes. And so that's why, you know, I, I think the string theorists should be left alone to do their thing. Um, I want to ask whether the general theory of relativity is dependent on a space-time that has got three dimensions of space and one of time, or whether it could uh, be more general. It could be more general. You can, and there are formulations. There are formulations, and for example, people in string theory work with a theory in 11 space-time dimensions. So you could have, you know, you, you could have lots of dimensions, and then the question is, where are those dimensions? Where have they gone? Great. Well, uh, thank you, Pedro, so much for sharing thank your you, time Marcus. this evening and also for your book, and I'm hoping that this book is going to make two uh, people who understand relativity <laughs> a little bit more than just two. So uh, thank, let's give Pedro a quick round of applause. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.